If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 29. That's where we will be this morning. We will begin in verse 31 and go down to verse 24 of chapter 30. Um, In this passage, we will see um, God blessing Jacob with 11 sons and one daughter. I was talking to Alan uh, this week um, because we always typically put, Tommy and I'll put a Bible verse on the front page of the worship guide. And this is one of those passages where I did not, I could not find a verse to fit, um, to go on the, the, the front. Um, so I ended up putting one that went along with the picture of baptism. But with that, as I studied this passage, it seems to always be the case. When you study passages that just seem to be more difficult, you're like, how am I going, what, what, what do I get out of this? How do I preach this? How do, how, what was the Lord teaching us here? Um, those are the ones that typically tend to, especially for me, where with sermons, I'm cutting stuff out. And that is one of these where uh, towards the end of the week, I had to get a lot out of the sermon because just um, so much is here as we think about this text in light of the fuller um, biblical revelation. But before we get into this passage, I do want to address one issue. I want to just take a few minutes and address this because it's presented to us here. Um, If this was 2003, Um, I probably would not address this at all, maybe just a a side note, Um, but with the Obergefell ruling in 2015, um, our culture, as you know, has redefined marriage. To be clear, the definition of marriage has not changed, but our cultural foundations have shifted, as you know, because when God created the world, he instituted marriage to be between one man and one woman. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. But today, it's legal in our nation for not only a man to marry a woman, a woman to marry a man, but also for the same sex to marry. And with this perversion of marriage, what prevents a man from marrying more than one woman or a woman marrying more than one man? And so since our cultural foundations have changed, I want to take a few minutes to address polygamy. Um, A couple of weeks ago, we saw Jacob marrying two wives, Leah and Rachel. And as we'll see today, with these two wives, um, he will have many children with them and their maidservants. And while this practice is immoral, you might find it interesting as you're reading through Genesis, the book of Genesis, at least here, says nothing about the issue, says nothing to condemn the practice. Yes, we will see the consequences of such a practice, but there's nothing in the text that is explicitly condemning polygamy. And so as I was reading some commentators, they'll let Jacob off the hook. They'll say, look, there wasn't a law in place, so give the guy a break, essentially. And in response, I would say that's a gross misunderstanding of God's institution of marriage. Marriage is a creation ordinance. I mean, marriage is given with the creation of man and woman. It's meant to be between one man, one woman. That's it. I mean, just think about this. Think about when the Pharisees, when they questioned Jesus about God's design for marriage, what does he say? He goes back to Genesis 2.24 because that is God's design for marriage. He says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. God's design for marriage has always been one man, one woman, and that's it. Everything else is forbidden. And since that is the truth, what do we make of Jacob and his two wives? Because it's through these two women and their maidservants that God will fulfill, begin to fulfill his promise to Jacob by giving him many descendants. So what do we make of this? What do we do with this? Well, first of all, this is just, I I think, a couple principles that are helpful as we read through scripture, especially narrative. Just because something happens, that does not normalize the practice. Just because something happens in scripture, that doesn't make it right. We should not read this passage and draw out moral absolutes merely because a practice is not condemned. And with that, we should also keep in mind that while Jacob's polygamy is not condemned, neither is it approved. 
Moreover, another interpretive principle that will be helpful for us all as we read the scriptures, interpret scripture in light of scripture. We should look at the more clear passages to help us understand the more difficult passages. So we ask the question, what else is said about marriage, about Jacob's marriages here? What does the Bible have to say about this? Well, we already talked about Genesis 2.24, and we talked about Jesus' use of Genesis 2.24. And since the scriptures do not contradict themselves, well, why do they not contradict themselves? One author. Yes, many men who God used to, 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 that he inspired to write these texts, but one author. That's why the scriptures do not contradict themselves. And since the scriptures do not contradict themselves, we should not assume that silence in Genesis 29 and 30 about polygamy means approval. Instead, we should read Genesis 29 and 30, understanding that polygamy is a perversion of God's design for marriage. Yet, God will work through Jacob's polygamy to bring forth his purposes. God does not condone evil. He's not the author of evil, author of sin. But he works in and through it. And as we see here, he will multiply Jacob's offspring. We'll see that explicitly when we get to Joseph. We will see that, we see that all throughout the scriptures. We see that explicitly when we think about Jesus. God didn't make anyone kill Jesus on the cross. Yet he worked through such evil to bring about such good. So while Jacob's polygamy, coming back here, is not condemned in this passage, neither is it approved. And as we see elsewhere in Scripture, marriage is between one man, one woman, and that's it. Anything else is a perversion of marriage. You know this, but we cannot forget this. When we begin to assume things, assume truths, it's when we begin to forget them. And we live among a people who clearly do not believe what the Bible has to say. So let us hold to these truths. Let us see these things clearly and not be led astray, especially as a passage here might look silent, look to be silent on polygamy, yet we know that the Bible is not silent. But to take it a step further, to go into the text here, while God's purposes are not thwarted by Jacob's polygamy, we also will see here it's not like Jacob and his wives live in perfect harmony either. For today's passage, we'll present Jacob to us as a passive, as a passive husband of two wives who covet what the other wife has. Leah, she wants Jacob's affection, while Rachel wants Jacob's children. And as we read this passage, you can just feel the tension between the two sisters. You can just feel this tension that is there. And as we look at the passages to help you see it, um, I've given you in your worship guide kind of a, a, at least five vignettes or five brief episodes here on page five. Um, you can see just the sections, and I'll just go through them before we read the passage to help us think through it. So the Genesis 29, 31 through 35, here we see Leah's womb is opened. God opens Leah's womb, and she will give birth to four sons. I've listed the sons' names on, on your worship guide there. Um, then in chapter 30, verses 1 through 8, we'll see Rachel. She will give her maidservant to Jacob, and Rachel's maidservant will give birth to two sons. After that, the narrative then moves back to Leah. She gives her maidservant to Jacob. Her maidservant will give birth to two sons. After this, the text will move back to really to, to Leah here from, from her maidservant. So we, we went from Leah, Rachel, and her maidservant to Leah and her maidservant. Now back to Leah. So in verses 14 through 21, we'll see Leah giving birth to two more sons and one daughter. And then the narrative finally concludes in verses 22 through 24 of chapter 30, with Rachel giving birth to Joseph. So all in all, this passage presents us with the birth of 11 sons and one daughter to Jacob. We'll have to wait till chapter 35 to see the birth of Jacob's 12th son, Benjamin. But here we have rapid fire succession, these 12 children that are being born to him. So our plan this morning will be to walk through the text, 
Then we'll step back. We'll look at this text in light of the overall biblical, biblical narrative, just the overall context of scripture. And then we'll look at some implications for us today. So let's go ahead and read our passage here, beginning in verse 31 of chapter 29, going all the way down to 24 of chapter 30. So Genesis 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've, given, I've, been, I've borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no, I'm sorry. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, "Give me children or I shall die." Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, "Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb?" And then she said, "Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf." that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When when, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So he called or she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. This is God's word. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before your throne this morning through the shed blood of Jesus Christ which has been applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And now we pray that the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit will intercede 
on our behalf because we too often know not what to pray. But as we do learn from Scripture, we are called to pray for your provision, for our daily bread. We're called to pray that your will will be done. So this morning, I pray that you will be with us, that you will help us, guide us in your word. We see in Scripture that it is your will that we become like Christ. So speak to our hearts this very day and transform us into the image and likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I pray for your will to be done among us here today. And also pray for our brothers and sisters in Ecuador. I pray for Jorge. I pray for him as he cares for his family, as they transition to to schooling their children at home. Pray for him as a husband, as a pastor, as one who has been burdened with, with much and been given many great opportunities and privileges, but I pray that he would not neglect his home. As he has mentioned to me, that he so desires to make sure that he pastors those who have been given to his care, that he would care well for his family, for his wife and kids. Father, I also pray for Taylor. I pray for he and Taylor as they pastor the church in Santo Domingo. For Taylor as he has just recently welcomed a baby into the world from his wife. I pray that he would care for her well. And I pray for that church. I pray that you would help them, sustain them, and that you would raise up many men within that congregation that will be able to serve and lead. And I pray the same for us. That if it be your will, that you would continue to raise up men among us who will serve and who will lead. Some to stay, some to go. For as we know in your word, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So I pray this very day that you will work in us both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Be with us this morning. Give us ears to hear and hearts to love you and one another. Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first 30 verses of chapter 29. And there we saw how Jacob ended up with two wives and two maidservants. And if having two wives and two maidservants is not complicated enough, his two wives are sisters, and Jacob prefers one over the other. Throughout the passage we looked at a couple weeks ago, we saw Jacob's love for Rachel. He sacrificed years of his life to marry Rachel. And so we whenever Jacob found out that Laban tricked him into marrying Leah instead of Rachel, he was shocked. And rather than moving on with his bride Leah, I mean, think about it. Jacob could have just cut his losses, so to speak. I mean, I hate to say that about receiving a wife, but he could have just moved on, been married to one woman. But instead, he determined to do whatever it took to marry Rachel as well. And while he married both sisters, we read in the middle of verse 30, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. So just imagine walking in Leah's shoes. Her husband is married to her sister. I mean, don't imagine that, I guess. But, but he's married to her sister, and not only is she sharing her husband with her sister, but her husband doesn't love her. Her husband set his eye on this one, worked so hard for her, And now all of a sudden, Leah's kind of a consolation prize, if even that. And so as we read in verse 31 of chapter 29, we see that Leah was hated. 
So when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, just looking at the the last part of this phrase, Leah was hated, it's likely this has more to do with her being unloved or ignored rather than Jacob actively hating her. So she was neglected. She doesn't have her husband's love. That belonged to her sister, Rachel. But as we read here in verse 31, the Lord saw. He sees her estate and he's about to act. And here, he's going to open her womb. Once again, in the book of Genesis, we talked about this when we, kind of, when we did a little review, we see God's eminence, his involvement in his creation. He does not owe anything to the creature. But as we're reminded here, God sees, and we could imply from that that he cares. He saw that Leah was hated and he opened her womb. God has the power to open and close the womb. And in this case, it's Leah's womb who will be opened and Rachel will remain barren. Rachel's barrenness will be a major source of conflict here because she will remain barren while her sister seemingly pops out babies left and right from her perspective. Rachel will be barren. Ladies, I'm sorry. I know that it's a lot more than that. Um, I should not speak. I'm a man. I don't have to go through that. I'm grateful for my wife um, that she carried our babies. So I apologize there. But back to Rachel's barrenness. Rachel will be barren. She desires to have children. But think about it. She's desiring to have children while she hears the screams and cries of her sister's babies. She will watch closely. She'll stand by and see her sister's children learn to crawl and to walk. She'll stand by and see her sister's children begin to speak and talk. She'll witness this and she'll grow more and more envious. Rachel desires to have children, yet she has Jacob's affection. While Leah desires Jacob's affection, yet she has his children. Both wives covet what the other has. And so in this first vignette, we see Leah giving birth to four sons. And in the first three birth pronouncements, we can perceive Leah's desire for her husband's affection. Look at verse two. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, look at this, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. So she names him Reuben because the Lord has looked upon her affliction. And as we observe at the end of this verse here, she says, she's just convinced, now I've given birth to a son. Now he will love me. Then in verse 33, she conceived again. She bore a son. And she says, because the Lord has heard that I am hated He has given me this son also. And she named him Simeon. And so with the birth of Reuben and Simeon, we see Leah's desire for her husband's affection. With the birth of Reuben, she's convinced that her husband will now love her. And then with Simeon, we see she's still neglected because the Lord has heard that I am hated. She was still unloved by her husband. And she continues to be consumed by this desire for her husband's affection, as we see in verse 34. Here we see the birth of Levi, her third son. And she says, now this time, my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. So while God opened Leah's womb and provided her with sons, we see that Leah so dearly longs for her husband's love and affection. Surely this time, with the birth of this son, Jacob will be attached to her. His affection will be for her. But even the birth of a third son will not draw Jacob's affection. Down in verse 15 of chapter 30, after she's given birth to four sons, her maidservant's given birth to two sons, we'll see that Rachel still has Jacob's affection. 
That's why Leah accuses her of stealing her husband. But before we get there, we do see a slight, or we do see, not a slight, but we do see a change of focus as Leah gives birth to a fourth son. In verse 35, we see that Leah gives birth, she conceives and bore a son. This is number four. And his name is Judah. And Leah says, this time, I will praise the Lord. She praises God for prospering her womb, for giving her a child. This is the proper response. But even though Leah acknowledges God's providence and praises God for giving her a child, we learn as the narrative continues that Leah is not content. She still desires her husband's affection and she will engage in unhealthy competition with her sister and actually walk in her sister's footsteps by giving her maidservant to Jacob. So this first episode here concludes with the words, then she ceased bearing. And now the account shifts to Rachel in the first eight verses of chapter 20. So we've seen Leah giving birth to four sons, yet so longing for her husband's affection. And then now we're going to come to Rachel, and we actually see Rachel's character pretty clearly on display. She envies her sister. She makes demands of Jacob. She gives her maidservant to Jacob so that she can have children through her. And so we see here in verse 1 just this tension from the outset. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She witnessed the birth of her sister's four children. She's growing envious of her. She desires to have children of her own. She does not rejoice with her sister, but is instead envious. Yeah, she may have thrown the gender reveal parties or the showers for her, but she did so in spite of her sister. And out of envy and frustration, she turns to Jacob and makes a demand. She says, give me children or I shall die. She's not threatening to kill herself. That's not what's in this. That's not the, the, the expression. She's stating how miserable she is. Her threat is similar to Rebecca. If you remember whenever after Jacob has, has deceived his father, stolen the blessing, Rebecca, at the end of Genesis 27, says, if Jacob marries a Canaanite woman, what good will my life be to me? Similarly here, Rachel sees no point in living if she can't have children. That's her perspective. She has her husband's love, yet she doesn't have the children that Leah has. So she has her husband's love, but she covets what Leah has. She covets Leah's status as a mother. And so she makes this demand that Jacob give her children as if Jacob is the one to open and close the womb. But as we know, through Genesis, we've seen it many times. Who opens and closes the womb? Who brings forth life? God does. So she she looks at Jacob, says, give me children or I shall die. Instead of praying to God, She makes a demand of Jacob. And Jacob's anger, as we see in verse two, was kindled against her. And then he acknowledges God's role in opening and closing the womb. I mean, look, he says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? I mean, just notice the tension here between Rachel and Jacob. This is the one that Jacob so desired. He worked so hard to marry her And now we have Rachel here acting in an ungodly way. She covets, she makes demands of Jacob that he cannot fulfill. And out of her idolatrous longing to have children, she's going to give her maidservant to Jacob. You see, it's not sinful to desire a spouse or to desire children. These are blessings from God. Having a spouse who loves you and children with your spouse, these are blessings from God but your desires are sinful when you're willing to sin to get what you want. In this case, Rachel gives another woman to her husband. 
She does the very same thing that Sarah did with Hagar. She determines to have children through her maidservant, Bilhah. And Bilhah will conceive and will give birth to two sons, yet Rachel will consider them as her own. And while the text does not say, you can just imagine the tension and strife that will come. We've already been down this road with Sarah and Hagar. But that's not the point to see the tension and strife that could come there. Instead, what we have here are the birth of two sons, Dan and Naphtali. In verse six, Rachel says, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. So Rachel perceives this son to be God's vindication. She believes that God has taken up her cause and provided her with a son through her maidservant. Right or wrong, that's her perception here. At the very least, she recognizes children to be a gift from God. And then in verse 8, with the birth of Naphtali, or Naphtali, she says, With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. Strange pronouncement, especially from one who did not just give birth to the child. But she says, this is victory over her sister. Her maidservant just gave birth to a child and she's declaring victory over her sister. Can you just feel the tension? Covetous desire, breeding unhealthy competition between sisters. So much so that each sister is willing to share her husband with another woman. And that's exactly what we see next. In this next episode, we return to Leah, who now follows in Rachel's footsteps. She now gives her maidservant Zilpah to Jacob. And he'll have two sons through her. The text doesn't tell us why Leah does this. It just says that in verse 9, when she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. So like Rachel, she gives her maidservant to Jacob. And like Rachel, she will keep these children for herself. That's the significance in naming the children. Naming signifies that these children belong to the one who gives the name. And here we have Leah in verse 11. Leah says, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. And then the second son from Zilpah in verse 13, we see her saying, happy am I. For women have called me happy, so she named him Asher. And so while, if you remember the first account we had with her, the first episode with Leah, she acknowledged God in the birth of her first four sons. She doesn't do that here. Good fortune has come. Happy am I, for women have called me happy. Kyle and Delich, their commentary, they, they write this, Leah did not think of God in connection with these births. They were nothing more than the successful and welcome result of the means she had employed. So we have covetous desire, an unhealthy competition between sisters, but through it all, God is multiplying Jacob's offspring. So far, we've seen Leah give birth to four sons, followed by Bilhah and Zilpah, each giving birth to two sons. And now, in the next episode, we return to Leah and we see her womb being reopened. But first, we're gonna see a tense exchange between these two sisters. In verse 14, Reuben goes out to the field and he comes back with some mandrakes. And then as we read at the end of verse 14, Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. A mandrake is a fruit that was believed to help with fertility. I'll leave it at that. But Rachel wants some of these mandrakes. Why? Because she so badly wants to give birth to a child. But Leah will not give in to her request yet. I mean, look at verse 15. She says, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? I mean, you can just cut the tension with the knife here. We have Rachel who's desperate to do anything to give birth to a child and Leah who is desperate to gain the affection of her husband. And Leah accuses Rachel of stealing her husband and subsequently trying to steal her son's mandrakes. And so Rachel makes a deal She tells Leah that she can have Jacob for the night in exchange for the mandrakes. And that's what happens. 
And as a result, Leah gives birth to another son, as we read in verse 17, and God listened to Leah and she conceived. Now it's possible that Leah has been praying for more children or about her status with her husband, about his affection. That, that, that's probably more likely of what the prayer has been. And God has heard her prayer and she conceived and gave birth to a fifth son whose name is Issachar. So while from God's perspective, we learn that he listened to Leah, she bore a son. And from Leah's perspective, we see in verse 18, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. From her perspective, she thinks God is approving what she's just done. God heard her. He listened to her. She thinks that God is approving the giving up of her maidservant. So we have to be careful. We'll consider this a little more next week. We have to be careful not to see prosperity as God's approval of our actions. I mean, there's not much to approve of here in this passage. Rachel and Leah covet what the other sister has. They're in competition with one another. Then there's Jacob. I mean, he's just the passive husband. I'm not gonna go into detail here. You can figure that out for yourself, but just being passed around. Yet now he has a quiver full of children. Good has come in spite of Jacob, in spite of Rachel, in spite of Leah. And after the birth of Issachar, Leah gives birth to a sixth son whose name is Zebulun. And with this birth, we once again see Leah's desire for her husband's affection. In verse 20, she says, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. This is consistent with the entire account. Leah wants her husband to show her honor. And she thinks with the six sons, surely he will do so now. And then before transitioning back to Rachel, we see in verse 21 that she gave birth to a daughter and her name was Dinah. Dinah was not the only daughter born to Jacob. We learn this later on in the Genesis account, but she's the only daughter that we know her name. And that's really, this is setting this up for Genesis 34 and we'll get there in a few weeks. So that's the last we read about Leah in this account. She's given birth to six sons. Her maidservant's given birth to two. Rachel's maidservant has given birth to two. And now we come to Rachel after the birth of Dinah. In verses 22 through 24, this is where the passage has been building towards. I mean, think about it. Barrenness has marked this passage. Rachel's barrenness has been a major source of conflict. And then now, all of a sudden, we're gonna see after many years, verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. This is such comfort when we read these words, especially for those of us who think God has forsaken us. Many years later, I mean, think about how many children have been born, especially to Leah. And now after all of these years, we read, then God remembered Rachel. He's not forgotten her and he will open up her womb and she will give birth to a son whose name is Joseph. And as this account concludes in verse 24, she says, his name is Joseph. May the Lord add to me another son. Well, she will give birth to another son. His name is Benjamin, but that is yet to come. But what we see here is that God has removed her barrenness and he's replaced it with a son from her very own womb. So in this account, we felt the tension between sisters, the desires of both women, accompanied by the births of 11 sons and one daughter. Jacob's household is beginning to fill, so to speak. God has promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that he would multiply their offspring. We know there is definitely a spiritual promise to Abraham as he will have many children. We can go to the, to the New Testament and see that, but there's also a physical promise as well. 
And that physical promise is beginning to be fulfilled. Jacob has a quiver full of children, despite the means it took to get there. So now that we've walked through this passage, we're going to consider this narrative in light of the greater biblical context. And then after that, we'll draw out three implications for us today. So as we consider this passage in light of the book of Genesis, one element, really in light of the whole of Scripture, one element that we recognize here is the Genesis 3 curse, along with God's ability and willingness to overcome the curse. When God judged the woman in Genesis 3, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And here in this passage, we see the curse played out through the pain of barrenness. Rachel, like Rebecca and like Sarah, they experienced years of barrenness. So here, Rachel's barrenness was on display throughout the entire account. This episode begins with her barrenness, and then it highlights her barrenness through the tension with Leah, and barrenness belongs to the painful curse upon childbearing. Through pain, you shall bring forth children. Think about the many years of barrenness that she experiences, and it will be through that that she will bring forth child. But as we see here, barrenness belonging to that curse, barrenness will not have the final say. As we see in verse 22 of 30, then God remembered Rachel and he listened to her and he opened her womb. God opens the womb. And this reminds us that he is able and he will conquer the curse. Jim Hamilton in his book, God's glory, uh, through salvation, or God's glory and salvation through judgment, he writes this, difficulty in childbearing is also conquered as barren women bear children. So in this passage, we're reminded both of the curse and of the hope that God will conquer the curse. Now we know that ultimately, God will conquer the curse through the cross of Christ as he dies a hill-biting death, becoming a curse to redeem us from the curse. But here we're reminded of a glimmer of hope of that. Here's the curse on display, the pain of childbearing through barrenness in in this regard, but God opening the womb, providing a glimmer of hope that one day he will overcome as he promised to do. So we have curse, but we also have hope that God will overcome the curse. Furthermore, as we consider this passage in light of the biblical context, we also see the narrowing of the Old Testament's focus upon the nation of Israel. Previously, through Abraham and Isaac, we saw the birth of nations. It would be through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the nation of Israel will come forth, but we also see the birth of nations through Abraham and Isaac. The Ishmaelites, the Midianites, they'll come forth from Abraham's offspring, The Edomites will come forth from Isaac's offspring, but with Jacob, his sons make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And it will be through this nation that God will bless the nations of the earth. In fact, it will be through Judah's offspring that Christ will be born. He was Leah's fourth son. And it will be through his offspring that the blessed son will be born. And this reminds us that while God's focus has turned, has narrowed to one nation, it's through this one nation that redemption will come to the nations. But it's not because this nation will ultimately be a blessing. But from this nation, one will be born who will bless the nations. And he'll be born nearly 2,000 years after Jacob walks the face of the earth. One final biblical connection I want to make here, and then I'm going to bring these three together before we draw some implications. But I want you to see God's use of that which is despised and lowly. 1 Corinthians 1.28, we read, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Do you hear that? God chose what is low 
and despised to bring to nothing the things that are. Why will he do that? So that no human being will boast in his presence. So think about Leah. She was despised by her husband. Yet it will be through one of her sons that the Messiah will be born. I mean, the the despised sister, it'll be through her son that Christ will come. He'll be born from the line of Judah. He will be born from Leah, who was despised and lowly. She was unloved. She was ignored, neglected. Yet God chooses that which is neglected. He chose the one who is neglected to show the world his power and wisdom. Think about a baby in a manger. A child whose birth should have taken place in a royal palace. Took place in a stable. God takes that which you and I think is worthless, foolish, and he shows forth his infinite power and perfect wisdom. The son of God was not only of lowly birth, he was despised by man. Yet it will be through him that salvation will come to the nations. He died a despicable death on the cross, yet through him redemption from the curse will come. And it's to him that we must look. We must come to him through faith. You must look to him, to the one who came in lowly form. And you'll find life. So when we consider this passage in light of the biblical context, we see the Genesis 3 curse on display. Yet we also see God working to reverse the curse through one nation through whom the Messiah will be born. And the Messiah will be despised. He will be rejected by man. He will die a sinner's death. And in this way, the wisdom and power of God will be evident to all. Seeing these connections throughout Scripture brings rejoicing to my heart. As I look at the Scriptures and see God working, setting something in motion long ago, and the outworking of His promises, the the, the way He fulfills those promises, promising in Genesis 3 to bring forth one who would crush the serpent's head, who will defeat the curse, and now seeing how God works through that, works that out through, I mean, Jacob? A deceiver, a manipulator, but yet a transformed man through now Leah's children, one who's despised and lowly. And yet through one of her sons will come the Messiah. So when we see God's redemptive work throughout history, it's hard for us to remain in our unbelief. The one who transcends creation is actively involved in it. And that's the first implication I want to draw out here. God is intimately involved in the lives of his creatures. You know this. He's not turned his back on his image bearers, therefore we can trust God. We can trust that he will do what he says he will do. But oftentimes you become anxious. I become anxious about things we're unable to control. For instance, we find Rachel here focused on that which was out of her control. She so badly wanted children and she lashed out at her husband and demanded that he give her a child. But as Jacob snapped back at her, he told her he's not in the place of God to open or close the womb. Rachel and Jacob would have done well to pray to God that he would open her womb and bring forth a child. Not only that, but they would have done well to trust in God's providential dealings with them. An English Puritan named John Preston, he noted that we are often deceived to think that God can only provide for us in one particular way or manner. And therefore, we're dead set upon this one means of God's providence. He said this, It may be that a man prays earnestly that he may have a strong body with which to do God service. 
It's a good thing, right? To pray for a strong body to serve God. But then he goes on to say, but it may be that sickness of body makes him to do better service because it keeps him in more awe. It weans him from the world and makes him more heavenly minded. Have you ever thought about that? We think, God, if you'll do this for me, then I can do this. When God's providential dealings with us is perfect. Rachel, so consumed with having children, wanting children so bad, instead of rejoicing with her sister, rejoicing that God has brought forth fruit from the womb and that in her barrenness in that stage was what God would have for her. So will you trust God that he knows what you need even when you don't think it's what you need? Instead of trusting in God's providence, Rachel, she lived a life of envy and frustration because she was convinced she needed children. Well, she does receive what she so badly desired. And eventually, as we're going to see in chapter 35, what she wanted will actually be the death of her. She will die shortly after giving birth to her second son. Another implication we can draw from this passage is related to external beauty. As we're reminded in Genesis 29 and 30, external appearances can be very misleading. Just think about it. Jacob, we saw a couple weeks ago, he was very attracted to Rachel. She was, in his eyes, beautiful. Nothing wrong with being attracted to a beautiful woman, not saying that. But we can say this, external beauty does not equal eternal bliss. In fact, we find Jacob and Rachel at odds. Taking it a step further, we find Rachel acting very ungodly. She's not content, she envies her sister, We're going to see in chapter 31, she steals her father's household gods and she lies about it. I mean, Rachel is an illustration of of Proverbs 31.30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Two takeaways from that. One, do not be consumed with external appearances. This is not permission to negate the body because Paul says there is some value in bodily training. But he says that training in godliness has value both in this age and in the age to come. So while we ought not neglect the external, we must not neglect the heart. Peter writes this to women, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Jesus speaking about external acts of piety, he denounced the hypocrites whom he compared to whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So what's most important to you? Outward appearances? An outward show of good works? Or your heart? What's most important to you, that which is seen or that which is not seen? Second takeaway from this, and this is geared to those who are in pursuit of a spouse. For our young people especially, I say this, do not be smitten by external appearances and lose all objectivity. Look at character. Don't be fooled by good looks. Discern the character of the man or the woman. Don't be like Jacob. He lost all objectivity and discernment. He was smitten by Rachel's attractiveness. I mean, he could have taken Leah and left. Sure, he wanted to marry Rachel, but he married Leah and he could have been married to one woman and lived according to God's design for marriage but he was dead set on Rachel. She was beautiful in his eyes. And so he was willing to take two wives. And we see here the consequences of his foolishness. So young people don't look solely upon external appearances. 
Look at the heart. Look at character as much as you can. Because external beauty will one day fade away. And then what? Then what do you have? You built on something that looked good on the external and the outside. We all get old. Well, if the Lord gives us years, we all get older. We age. And none of us look like we did when we were young and vibrant. But I'll say this, love grows. A a godly wife, a godly husband, your love grows, not because of the looks, not because of the external, but because of God, because you're looking towards the Lord, looking to him, walking in step with him, not what we see. Think about that. These things on this earth, wrath must, like wrath, rats, moth, they will destroy. Thieves break in and steal. Looks, they're vain. They perish, they go away. Even the best looking of buildings and, 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 and places we see eventually become ruined. So what will you focus on? Think about yourself. Will you focus on your heart, your walk with the Lord, or will you focus on what people think about you? Sammy, Sammy gave a great, you know, great testimony there about how he was seeking to please people. Will you seek the accolades of man and what people think about you? Will you look solely upon the external appearances? If you're looking for a spouse, will you look solely upon what the eye can see? Or will you pray to God who knows the heart and look to his word and discern according to his word? One more implication from this passage. And this flows out of all of that. Anything short of God will let you down in the end. You will not find the happiness, the delight, or the satisfaction that you're seeking apart from God. Jacob's eye was fixated on Rachel. He labored hard for her hand in marriage, but as we see, Rachel lets him down. His anger was kindled against her. And then there's Leah who sought to be loved by her husband. She so desired her husband. But the love which her husband could love her with would be a far cry from the love of God. Even if Jacob was the perfect, most loving husband, Jacob's love would be a far cry from the love of God. And then there's Rachel. She wanted children. She had her husband's love, but she wasn't content. She wanted children and she was willing to sin to get what she wanted. But as we are reminded throughout the scriptures, True contentment is found in God. Hebrews 13, five, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will neither leave you nor forsake you. Be content with what you have. Why? Because God is with you. God will not leave you or forsake you. It's not about what you have or don't have, earthly speaking. It's whether you have God. Is your life hidden with Christ in God? And if Christ is your life, then you are very rich. The things of this world will one day fade away. All earthly accolades, material wealth, earthly beauty will soon be gone. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And as we read in God's word, as Tommy read for us this morning, in him there's fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Therefore, he calls us to come to him and to be satisfied in him. Too often we veer off course and we think the things of this world can give us what only God can give us. We think we can find eternal joy through Amazon Prime deliveries. Look at your front porches. We think we can find eternal joy just by having a better spouse or through the right house or through the right job or through well-behaved children. But nothing on this earth can give you what only God can give. True blessing is found in the Lord. Don't succumb to the advertisements of this world and think that if only I had this, I would be content. Only if I had this job or if I lived in this place, I'd be content. For I tell you, true contentment can be found right here. Not because of where we live, not because of what we do, but because God is with us.
Christ died for us. We have life in him. What more could we possibly ask for? Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. So if Christ is your life, then you have everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come before you because of Christ. Spirit has opened our eyes to the beauty of Christ. I pray that as we see beautiful things in this world, we would rejoice, but ultimately we would long for true beauty, the beauty of Christ, our Lord and Savior. I pray that we wouldn't be distracted by the things of this world. I pray we would use the things of this world for your honor and glory. I pray that we would be content in you because you alone satisfy. And I pray as we sing now, we would say truly, all I have is Christ. Because in the end, when everything fades away, that's what counts. So help us to continue holding on to Christ, to see the worth of Christ, And I pray this in no other name but the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.